Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Investor Intelligence brought to you by the team at The Property Mentors. It's your weekly podcast for all things investment and hosted by me, Phoebe Sikowski-Wallace. So if the pandemic has taught us anything, it is that it is very hard to predict the future. But if anyone is going to come close to predicting the future, it is today's guest. So earlier in the week, I sat down with Simon Kustemaker, who is one of Australia's leading demographers and the co-founder and director of the Demographics Group. And at the start of the year, Simon wrote an article that featured 22 predictions for 2022. Now, given that Simon lives and breathes data and research, I was really interested to learn about these predictions from the man himself. Now, this is something a little bit different from our usual episodes, but you will hear that quite a few of these have to do with housing and property. Some aren't going to come as much of a surprise, but there are some that will, and I think you'll find them really fascinating. Now, this interview with Simon will be split into two episodes, so make sure to subscribe if you want to be notified when the second part drops. But I hope you enjoy this talk as much as I did. Here's Simon. So Simon Kustemaker, welcome to Investor Intelligence. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. So the last time I spoke to you was actually on another podcast and we were talking about the work from home phenomenon and it was just so insightful and you were just such a joy to learn from and I knew at some point that I had to get you on another episode or in this case another podcast. And then recently I saw, so this is a couple of weeks ago now, I saw that you had posted a video and you had written an article about these 22 predictions that you'd made for 2022. And I thought, great, this is my chance. Is this something that you do every year and have been doing for many years? Or is this maybe something that's been brought on by the pandemic? Because if anything, the pandemic has taught us that the future is very hard to predict. Oh, absolutely. I think the topic idea really came from, well, first and foremost, it came from the need to write a column every week. So you're constantly looking for column topics. And it was obvious, an obvious choice to look ahead uh, into 2022. And then you go, ah, 10 predictions for 2022. That doesn't make sense. So you might as well make it 22 predictions. And just in writing, this actually came pretty easy. So I think there would have been room for another one or two predictions. So I'm all set for the column for next year. Well, yeah, as the years go up, the the predictions go up. So that'll (laughs) be easy for you. So what are these predictions based off mostly? This is all based on data, based on tons of research, and they're also predictions. So that's the idea. We can't know for sure that they are actually going to eventuate, but we can actually look at past data. We can then make a couple of assumptions about the future and then say there are certain things that will develop in this way. Of course. And have any of these predictions, because I assume that you would have written these just before we entered 2022, have any of these changed since then? No, I just read through the column uh, before our talk and I figured, ah, no, so this all, I'm I'm still standing uh, by all of them. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. Standing strong. Fabulous. Well, just going down the list, a lot of these predictions, there's quite a few that have to do with housing and property, which is obviously very fitting for this podcast. But there are plenty that I think many of our listeners would just be interested to hear in general. So let's get straight into them. Number one, you've got millennials continue on to family-sized houses. 
Explain that to me. Yeah. So the biggest generation in Australia at the moment are the millennials. Mm. And they are, after many years of procrastination, finally reaching the family stage, family formation stage of the life cycle. So that means that the millennials uh, will stop living in the inner hip suburbs of our capital cities in one or two bedroom apartments and they will move to family sized homes because all of a sudden they have another little human in the house. Mm -hmm. So that trend just happened to be starting really during the pandemic. That was just demographic dumb luck, as I like to call it. And that really kept the housing market going. Um, if you remember, at the very start of the pandemic, a couple of folks said, ah, surely we'll see this big, nice drop in the housing market and the, um, you know, everyone who is the homeowner can snatch up a home at a 20% discount. Mm. That didn't happen. The exact opposite happened. And it didn't come as a surprise for anyone familiar with demographic data, simply because you have this big cohort of millennials seeking three to four bedroom homes and they will need to find them somewhere and they can't find them in their local inner hip uh, suburb inner city uh, suburbs so they move to the urban fringe they move to regional australia they move to wherever three and four bedroom homes are uh, affordable or even available to them mm. i like the way that you say um they're going to hipstify suburbia and regional oz <laughs> Uh, absolutely. If you have a new population moving into any area, they will leave their mark. And in Australia, we've been long doing this. Mm. And then do you see Gen Z occupying those original, quote unquote, hipster suburbs? That is exactly what's happening. And yeah. that always has happened. It's, it's just the housing life cycle moving on. The problem here, though, is that a long while ago, when the millennials moved into the inner city at scale, they were a really big generation following the small generation of Gen Xers. So this led to a big boom in the inner city where house prices went up, uh, tons of buildings went up uh, as well as, as we try to, you know, satisfy the, the demand for housing in the inner city. But now you have Gen Z, a small generation following a big generation. So they will have it uh, really good, if you will, in the inner city because uh, housing should be more affordable for Gen Z during their um, uni years, if you will. Mm, interesting. So prediction two, as the decentralization of the population continues, local governments face predictable challenge. Talk to me about that. Uh, really just means that for the first time in forever, those millennials are leaving the inner city and are moving to regional Australia in scale. So that means that all of a sudden you have a couple more people living there and if all things are going well, infrastructure is going to grow in those regional areas at the same pace as the population is growing. We historically have not been very successful in doing this. We've seen this in areas like Point Cook in Melbourne, where we had massive population increases, but we didn't build enough infrastructure. So there were terrible traffic bottlenecks. There weren't enough um, uh, facilities, schools, whatever available. So that was a problem. So now the regions, all the regions are wondering, well, is this just a two-year phenomenon where people are moving to the regions? And so we don't really need to do much. We don't need to heavily invest into a market or into upgrading our infrastructure, adding more schools, whatever it is uh, that they need to be doing. And the truth is it will continue for a while, simply because the millennials aren't finished with uh, starting families. This will continue for another five, six, seven, 
maybe even 10 years. Um, so the regions are well advised to heavily invest into infrastructure. And you mentioned as well in that point that if the sort of the councils or the government don't make enough room or they don't spare up enough land, this is going to hurt low-income earners? Absolutely. So remember that a regional housing market usually operates on just a couple of people moving in, a couple of people moving out. So there isn't much movement happening. Mm -hmm. So you can really just add a couple of hundreds of additional um, migrants, settlers uh, in, in a regional town and the housing market goes berserk. Mm. Um, especially rents go up massively. And then it is the responsibility of the local council to make sure that there is enough housing being built. Had they all known in advance that this will happen, they could have sorted this out, you know, with all those nice uh, council meetings and plans and slowly make land available. The local builders could have uh, slowly started to hire more staff to actually build the additional houses. This right. uh, There was no ad advanced warning, so the regions were pressured into this. And... You see this in every major regional town, how they suffered um, in prices going up. And if you own a house in the region, that's nice because, well, on paper, at least you're a bit richer. So that's kind of funny, uh, fun to do, but it doesn't have a major impact on you. It is problematic if you're renting and rents go up. It is problematic if you are a young person in a regional area that is currently living at home and potentially wants to stay in the region, um, but all of a sudden rents uh, or, or buying a home is much more expensive than you might have um, previously thought. So right. the loser in this decentralization movement are the low income earners in the regions um, if the councils don't react. And if enough land is made available, uh, then more jobs will eventuate because then, the, uh, you know, somebody needs to build those houses. And then this actually leads to a, a positive economic boom in a region, but mm -hmm. only if it's done well. Yeah, okay. So there's a bit of pressure there. So number three is, I think, a pretty obvious one, I feel like, at the moment, and something you and I have spoken about before, is that hybrid work will continue to dominate. Yeah. So I think the important uh, point here is that it's not just uh, going to be working from home forever. Um, there is the idea that it's it's just wonderful to work from home. Sure um, is. And I'm, I'm always saying if you... Uh, you know, if you wake up uh, to your alarm clock at 6.30 in the morning and then you have the choice to, you know, uh, shower, make breakfast, put on makeup, uh, go to the train and commute to work or to sleep in for another hour and a half, mm -hmm. I wonder which one you will choose on any given Tuesday. Yeah, it's a tricky one, yeah. <laughs> and so the idea is, though, that work will benefit from the hybrid model because why would you go to the office for tasks that you can do at home? Mm, so exactly. in an ideal environment, work is split in two, in two parts. These tasks that can be done um, quietly on your own time, um, silent, quiet thinking work, programming type work, uh, private phone conversations maybe, these are best done at home. So ideally you can shift them to two or three days of the week. And for those collaborative tasks that you that you need your colleagues for, um, where you really benefit from being around your colleagues, that is best done in the office. And if you take this to the absolute extreme and you imagine just for a second that every 
every business in the CVD was going to operate this way. This creates a wonderful work environment where, you know, everyone is out and about in the CVD meeting people. It's, it's very collaborative in nature. The office changes then because all of a sudden you don't need um, cubicles or, or hot desks anymore. You need more collaborative spaces. You need larger kitchens, more meeting rooms. All this uh, is just actually worth it. You see the big employers or the bosses maybe wanting to pressure their workers back into the office and that mm -hmm. is not going to work. You want to make sure that the work setup is actually benefiting work itself and work is best done um, in person with your colleagues but not all of the work, just some. And some work is best done at home. So ideally, try to get the balance right as, as, as good as you can. And that means they, a one-size-fits-all um, solution for a company doesn't, doesn't work. And of course, this will change from week to week, this particular balance. So flexibility in managing people uh, will be absolutely crucial. And it also means that there will be more management duties for middle managers, uh, to be honest. Do you see this affecting, and I don't even know if you can comment on this, but is, do you see this affecting commercial real estate at all? Like, do you think a lot of offices will downsize, but then maybe by extension of that could possibly free up some spaces for other businesses that wanted to originally work in the city but couldn't find the space? So let's first take the long-term perspective. The CVD will be absolutely fine because all of our capital cities will grow at really high paced rates once the borders are open again and once a Melbourne and a Sydney goes from 5 million to 6 to 7 to 8 million people in no time really. We need probably only a decade to add another million people. So then the CBD will be just fine. Even we need more buildings in the CBD. Even if a higher share of the population on any given day works from home. So that's the long-term perspective. I can take the long-term perspective because I don't own billions worth of dollars of commercial real estate in the city. So I, you know, it's easy for me to make those uh, comments. If I am invested into real estate, though, in the inner city, this is a bit more of a pressing, uh, a, a pressing issue. And the goal here is to get the balance right. The top locations in the CBD, they will definitely be fine because um, even if, uh, you know, if you have a top tower uh, and you, you hired 10 or you, you leased 10 floors and now you only need eight floors, seven floors, then you will have businesses from the second tier locations, uh, you know, taking the chance to, to upgrade to a Collins Street uh, address in, in Melbourne, for example. That'll be a welcome change. And so the people in the CBD who suffer in the short term won't be the second tier or first tier, even second tier locations, but it will be the third tier streets um, where you know, offices will empty out. And in the long run, that's also a good thing because we do have a lot of uh, skyscraper stock uh, that is in major need of an of an overhaul. And and so hopefully this will help the um, the renovation cycle that that a CBD goes through as well. So I'm not at all pessimistic in in the long and medium term, but in the short term, of course, there will be. Um, a lot of pain for people who are invested in the uh, in the commercial real estate in the CBD. Okay. So the fourth one is uh, not one that a lot of people are going to be happy to hear, but is also probably quite predictable, is that house prices are going to continue to rise. 
Exactly. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm starting this point in saying, uh, you know, lots has been written about this. This has long been a topic. Mm. All the major banks predict the same thing. My demographic approach here is to say that the um, family formation stage of the millennials hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't finished yet. So there's more movement from the inner city to the outer city. Um, so that trend will continue. Also, I'm making the point that government has no interest in making house prices go, go down. But the idea is that the vast majority of Australians own the home. So this is their largest financial asset. So if you are introducing any policy that essentially guarantees that your larger largest asset goes down in price, you will vote against this. So therefore, no politician has any interest in introducing anything like this. They will cry yeah. crocodile tears and they will be introducing um, some policies that look like they might help first home buyers, but they probably are achieving the exact opposite. The classic example here is... Um, you know, first home buyer grants. It just means that everybody who buys a home uh, has $10,000 more or $5,000 or whatever it is. So that means the prices go up. Markets adjust to, um, you know, to more money being around. So that looks like a nice scheme, uh, but it does absolutely nothing in the right direction. And politicians will be doing this rather than introducing any real policy. If you wanted to get fit or start a fitness program, you wouldn't run a marathon if you hadn't yet mastered jogging. You also wouldn't begin weight training by lifting 30 kilo dumbbells. There are of course multiple ways to keep fit through a variety of sports and exercise programs. However, there is a process to getting into shape and achieving peak performance. It's the same when it comes to investing in property. You need to start by doing some self-assessment of where you are now to where you'd like to be. This would be your fitness test. You have to find your team of experts who will help you along the way. These would be your trainers. And learn how other people invest, including the mistakes they've made. Only then can you start to look at how you will achieve your property investing goals. Property Fit assists you with all of this. It's the latest book from experienced property investor, entrepreneur, and founder and CEO of The Property Mentors, Luke Harris. It's the book that will guide you through the groundwork you need to cover before you start investing, exploring all the ways to invest in property by helping you find a strategy that will lead to the ultimate goal of financial freedom. Property Fit is your easy to read, practical book, including mentor tips and mindset insights, as well as proven strategies that seasoned investors or those just starting out in property will find invaluable. Visit propertyfitbook.com.au to purchase your copy and get your property portfolio in shape for financial freedom. So continuing on with the housing talk, number five says the average Australian house will get bigger in 2022. Yeah, that's... Uh you know, for a long time, there was a, a talk about the previous years that said, ah, Australian homes are getting smaller. But that was only a reflection of the demographic reality of Australia. First and foremost, you have now the biggest generation moving into um, family-sized homes. So all of a sudden, the millennials move from small apartments into big houses. That makes the average house bigger. 
Also, they're not moving in the old houses of baby boomers who might downsize it to small apartments. You know, they could switch homes, essentially. That's not happening because the baby boomers are still too healthy and vital to downsize. Mm -hmm. And Australians don't downsize at scale their homes for financial reasons, meaning it would be smart to sell now and then move into a smaller home. Some people do this, but largely Australians only sell their family home once it becomes a nuisance to manage, once it becomes a physical hazard. And that usually only starts in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, and uh, the baby boomers haven't reached that um, stage just yet. You talk about in that point as well uh, that people are going to almost be looking at houses that will have a spare room that will then become the permanent Zoom room? Oh, absolutely. All of a sudden, we take more functions that were used to take place outside the home into the home. Work, even if you work from home one or two days per week, you probably don't want to do this on your on your couch or on your kitchen bench. You probably want a decent uh, setup. Uh, you want a, a good, ho it doesn't need to be a flash big room, but you need a separate room with a door to keep the kids and the cats out of your Zoom calls. <laughs> sure. And number six kind of goes hand in hand with this one. You're saying Bunnings Barbecue Galore and all these kind of big homeware stores are about to do quite well. Is that because people are wanting to make their houses more livable? Exactly. So we are cocooning more. We're spending more time in the home. We're taking more functions that were taking place outside the home back into the home. Mm -hmm. They will be more entertaining in the home. Um, so that means, you know, all those guys selling you big screens, they'll benefit. Um you know, if you sell kitchenware, uh, that'll that'll benefit um, home gym equipment. Um, you know, all these functions are at least partially uh, moving back to the home. So we're now at least, you know, even if we're just hedging our bets, if we can afford a larger home, we will want a larger home because who knows when the next um, when the next lockdown will be. This isn't necessarily a rational decision. We've seen this in maybe in your grandparents' generation. These were people that lived through real food shortages and you will still have the Italian nonnas with their pantries stocked up uh, to the brim as if there was going to be, uh, you know, a famine coming uh, mm. soon. Mm. That is a learned habit. And I do think that as a generation that lived through a pandemic, that lived through lockdowns, we will be seeing... Um, this again, which actually just quite nicely leads me to my seventh uh, prediction, which is that one size doesn't fit all. Before the pandemic, it was pretty easy for us to make predictions about what Australians are doing. Australians, you know, behave like this on the consumer market. This is increasingly going to be a bit more nuanced, I think, because we had two years of living through lockdowns uh, that varied massively between the different states. So a Melbourne that had the longest lockdown will have um, implemented uh, or created new habits in, in at a different scale than a WA that was open uh, for mm. so long. So therefore, consumer behavior and also those housing patterns of, you know, desiring larger homes will probably look a bit different from one state to the next. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So number eight is the socioeconomic divide widens. 
Yeah, that's uh, not a that's not a good news story here. No. Um, it's the idea that the pandemic made the rich richer. You've seen all those news stories of the ten uh, richest people in the planet getting like twice as rich or something like this sure, uh, yeah. over those two years, while the poorest people have suffered more. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Um, this is partially pandemic driven. We've seen this that the we we actually grew our highly skilled jobs during the pandemic. The highly educated uh, knowledge worker market that grew. The people that suffered, the people that lost their jobs were low skilled and unskilled workers. This was the hospitality sector is an obvious example where plenty of uh, jobs, you know, uh, waitresses, uh, kitchen hands, chefs, these jobs uh, got just killed off at least temporarily. And so these were the people that were without income. Uh, maybe they got a bit of government payments, but they carried the brunt of the economic pain. So the burden of the pandemic wasn't distributed equally across everyone's shoulders, even though you can say, well, we sure all lived under the same restrictive measures, um, but it didn't impact us just as, you know, as is evenly. Yeah, that's a that's a really great but very sad point. Yeah. So number nine, it says baby boomers will act with a sense of urgency. What do you mean by that? Well, so this is a generation that worked hard, that also had lots of things working in their favor um, as they as they progressed through their careers. And they're now reaching half of the millennials, re uh, half of the baby boomers reached retirement age already. So they essentially planned their retirement, at least the first 10, 15 years of their retirement to be their, uh, their golden years, their active years, where they're still... Uh, healthy, where they're out and about, where they're visiting grandkids, where they are traveling mm. and they have been cheated out of uh, two years of doing that. Um, and so that creates a sense of urgency because they are very much aware of their own, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know, they're, they're aware of death. You know, <laughs> they, they, yeah. how do you say yeah, that nicely? Yeah. Exactly. So they, they know that uh, they won't be here forever and it is their time now and they might as well um, make the most out of it. And so there will be a sense of, of, of urgency dealing with this market. And, you know, they, they got money. So it's a good cohort to tap into if you are, um, you know, if, if you're marketing anything to, to a cohort, that, that's, that's a fun, fun segment of the market to be dealing with. Okay, so we're going to be seeing some big spending maybe from, from that demographic. Okay. So number 10, the trend towards sliding into retirement, which kind of goes off our last one, continues. Exactly. So the, the idea is that in many jobs previously, when you did when you were engaged in physical labor, for example, um, you just retired from one day to the next simply because your body couldn't do this forever. So at 65 on a Friday, um, you received a, a gold watch and then you never worked again until you died. That's essentially how retirement worked in the past. But now people don't retire really uh, that, you know, with such a easy demarcated line in the sand. So they slide into retirement. What that means is you scale back your hours. You still remain connected to work. Oh, um, you okay. only work three days per week. You work two days. Maybe you occasionally come back consulting to your own job. And now that more and more of the uh, people in their 60s and 70s are actually working in knowledge jobs, that is very much possible to do this. So what, what do you do? Well, 
you still stay connected to work, but you also take off time. You take time off work and you travel. Um, you know, you go to Europe to enjoy a Rhine River cruise. You go uh, playing golf most days of the week, but you still have an income. But you also have, uh, you, you draw retirement benefits already. So you have uh, time and money. It's actually the only time in your life cycle when you are rich in both time and money. At all other points in your life, at least one of those two uh, you have a shortage of. So again, that's it's a wonderful position to be to be in. Would you say this point is pandemic driven? And do you think this is kind of because they would rather work than not in a time that there's still kind of restrictions around? So uh, the idea is that this is not just pandemic driven. This okay. is a trend that has long been in the making. Though ah. um, du so during the pandemic, you can say that people lost potentially, some of them lost income and therefore are forced to work a bit longer. Gotcha. And particularly if you see your... Um, you know, your superannuation uh, go down, maybe, you know, if there's a stock market crisis at the moment, it looks like a bit of a plunge at, again. So then if you see a 10, 15% drop in your nest egg, you say maybe it's smarter to st still stay connected with the workforce for a bit longer, just in case. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So number 11 is a slightly more positive one, I think. So Gen X is taking over even more leadership positions. Exactly. That's just the life cycle as, as it goes along. Um, the Gen Xs will be in their mid 50s in the, you know, in the next year or all people in the mid 50s are Gen Xs the next year. Let's put it this way. That means that certain positions are being handed over to Gen X. You become prime minister at 52. You become um, CEO at 54. On average, so that means that these top leadership decisions, those this, uh, or those top leadership positions that set the direction, the strategic, the policy direction, um, they are held by Gen Xs. That means that the values of Gen X they will be amplified. So just by that simple demographic fact, we can know that certain policies like work-life balance—that's one of the obsession topics of Gen X—they um, will be generously managed. So that means uh, parental leave policy will be much in favor of the parents. Um, they are also really obsessed about equal pay, about gender equality. So these issues will be improving much faster than people might have predicted, simply because those folks in power, they really have those as their pet projects. Um, to, you know, add an addendum to this point that is less positive is that Gen X, uh, you know, as a, as a rough simplification, uh, they are not obsessed with climate change. So that is not going to be one of their pet projects. That has, from a policy decision at least, has to wait until the 2030s when millennials uh, will be taking over those top, top positions in Australia. Oh, okay. So I, I was going to say Gen X taking over even more leadership positions kind of seemed or sounded inevitable, but what you're saying is the main thing is we're going to see some more progressive policies kind of come over a lot of the workforce. There, there is a certain there is a certain level of seniority that's built into the top leadership yeah. positions. So therefore, people of a certain age tend to, on average, become CEO and uh, and then board members and so on. And the 2020s are the decade of Gen X, where Gen X is in the top leadership positions. The 2030s will be the decade of millennials being in the top leadership positions. So each generation of leaders brings their specific pet projects um, to the uh, to the 
the table. That's not saying that there aren't uh, fantastic environmentalists in the Gen X uh, cohort. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But I'm saying as a whole, um, the climate change sustainability movement needs to come from the grassroots. Over the next decade and over the 2030s, it will come from above. Guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to know any more about Simon and any of the work he does, you can find him on LinkedIn. A link to that and a link to the 22 predictions for 2022 article you can find in our show notes. If you want to know any more about us here at The Property Mentors, you can visit our website, thepropertymentors.com.au and you can find and connect with us on any of our socials, which are also linked in our show notes. Make sure to subscribe if you want to be notified when part two of Simon's predictions are available. Until then, thank you so much for listening and I'll be back in your ears again next week.